0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this 28th edition of Clarity Chat Podcast. I have with me Finn O'Leary, board advisor, non-executive director, and CIO at Blue Ridge. In today's session, we will discuss with him the key ingredients for becoming a cross-culture mistro, navigating deeper from solution ask to identifying the real root causes winning potential political wars without any casualties. We will also discuss insights into the art of change management and execution excellence. This is the 28th episode of Clarity Chat Podcast and here comes an exciting discussion with Finn. Welcome Finn. Did you know that 83% of technology implementations fail to achieve expected business outcomes? Well, managing technology is incredibly complex, IT covers all processes and everything IT does impacts people in some way. The function is only three decades old but changing at the fastest pace. Technology industry is highly profitable with intense marketing. Tech companies have the vast majority of the tech talent, not you. Clarity Chat Purpose is rooted in helping you solve IT challenges for business success, to help you decode the complexity, to help you leverage partners effectively, to help you partner with business more effectively, to help you manage change better, to help you attract talent. You get this clarity via experiences of CIOs and business leaders, shared informally and candidly over a cup of tea. Welcome to the Clarity Chat Podcast. I want to ask you uh, about a couple of hacks in dealing with culturally diverse people. You've worked uh, across so many different countries and cultures. What are some simple things to build relationships with people?
1: Well, I think you know the answer to this as well as I do, Jack it's it's, it, it's incredibly, everybody loves and everyone likes eating. So, lunches and coffees with people. An appreciation, a curiosity, and an appreciation of the food that they have in that particular country—you can't go wrong. It breaks down barriers, even if people don't want it. It'll work, you know. So a little bit of socializing like that goes goes a long, long way.
0: No, absolutely, absolutely, Finn. I I, I fully agree with you. Uh, not presuming uh, things about the local culture. I mean, showing a curiosity asking some open questions to get people talking and then, yeah, very importantly, food. Uh, So Finn, in this first part of the chat, you know, we try to look at uh, things, you know, or the leadership principles through the lens of your journey. So let's keep it, uh, you know, I call it Maggie style, two minute (laughs) answers. Um, So Finn, you did uh, civil engineering, but you went went on to become CIO. Uh, do you remember any incident which gave you an indication that you will end up in IT uh, as you were growing up? So, and, I, I mean, no, with that question, specific question, if you can share, you know, something about your childhood to your first job and your experiences and learnings from that first one—it's all, 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 always the most formative.
1: Uh... Yeah, well, originally, originally I wanted to do automobile engineering, but I did uh, civil engineering because they cancelled the course at the last moment. By the time I'd finished, the building industry had collapsed in Ireland, so I ended up working in um, in back office settlements and clearing in a bank. When I'd done engineering, it's something really, really new, which was called Fortran programming, and this is in the in the late seventies. I um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I remember writing my first simultaneous equation and saying, whoa, this new computing stuff is is quite interesting. So after a few months in that bank they had aptitude tests to join the IT department and the rest is history after that this was a this was a really really small bank it was um 12 or 13 branches about 130 employees so when you joined the IT department and got trained in to be a COBOL programmer you ended up being a jack of all trades for example we used to to run the the end of day. Um, it was a batch process at that time, and quite often the bank would be out of balance, so you'd have to figure out, you know, what branch, what teller had caused this out of balance, and generally fix it, which was, you know, very different to what most programmers would do. But the wonderful thing about this bank is it grew, it um, merged. And another couple of back 10 years later eight nine ten years later um it had 130 branches and about 1500 employees and because it was small and growing rapidly i'd moved from programmer to team leader business analyst systems analyst architect, and was the head of development i left there with a team of, of 25 so
0: you know um
1: it was it was very, very interesting. But they, one of the things that I did while I was there was that I qualified as a member of the Institute of Bankers. And you find this goes throughout the theme of this conversation. You always have to understand the business that you're dealing with. So I've, I keep telling um, young people in technology, okay, you've got your twenty different certificates and things like this how many have you got in the business that you're actually working in so you know it, it's a, I, and I I I've, I've been telling people that for years and some people have actually come back to me and said that was a really good tip 15 years ago
0: oh no absolutely absolutely uh, you know i mean having a technology career and then uh, you know getting certified in banking uh, i think i think eventually with technology, we are solving the uh, process uh, problems, the the problems of the industry. And uh, I think the quality of solutions that we provide will uh, really depend on the depth in which we understand uh, the domain itself. Uh, I mean, just to uh, relate to that, uh, Finn, you know, whenever a function head in my CIO role, you know, asked me to solve something. Uh, the first thing I would do is like, you know, okay, uh, I'll come to your department and I'll I'll sort of either walk the shop floor with you or, you know, you run me through What you do, how you do, you know, what technologies mm-hmm. you currently, what are your biggest pains, plans and all of that And I would first pick their brains on, uh, you know, what they do and how they do even before we talk about uh, Technology, so 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 very important uh, point you brought out uh, Finn. So Finn. Uh, yeah,
1: uh, yeah, like Sorry, the thing on that one is, you know, there's this phrase that I think, Chagnesh, you've, you've probably used many times, is um, don't tell me what solution you want. Tell me what problem you have. And
0: absolutely. then
1: together, we'll figure out what the best solution is.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, You know, uh, in other words, they say that diagnosis is 90% of the solution. If you're able to put your finger on the pulse of the problem, I mean, uh, the solution wouldn't take much longer. Yeah. And uh, we also see yep. that you know most of the time uh, we actually go around the mulberry bush, not even able to identify <laughs> where the problem is. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so, so let, let's move forward, uh, Finn. So 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 after the bank, uh, you know, as a head of development, what next?
1: Then I went to work for a system supplier, which was Unisys Banking Systems. Did uh, core wholesale. Banking and for treasury, uh, fairly big applications, and with them I moved to Singapore, where I did a project for um, Cargill Commodities Company. They're a very, very big commodities company for their regional treasury hub in Singapore. This is in the mid-late nineties. They were passing about twenty billion annually through that treasury, and um, they. We turned that treasury or we turned that treasury function into an in-house banking function so that the companies in the group actually came to the Treasury for funding rather than going directly to the banks themselves. Following that, I did projects with China Construction Bank both in Hong Kong and Singapore, starting up China Construction Bank in Singapore, and then moved to all of this time with Unisys uh, moved to the Philippines to set up an offshore development centre and a support centre for the Asian region, uh, which I started off with six Filipinos, that Filipinas, Filipinos in my team, and we grew that over about a year, year and a half to 45, and moved all support from London to Asia. So it was, you know, very much regional support for the regional clients across across Asia. What was interesting, I think, about that time, this was, you know, I'm Irish. I'd worked in the US, but, you know, an Irish person working in the US isn't exactly a huge culture shock. I'd worked in Europe and Eastern Europe, which was a bit more, but Asia was a very foreign place to me. I absolutely loved it because it was all so so different. And we go back to the food. Anyone who's been in Singapore knows how good the food is. So I landed in the right place. What I found, again, the Treasury project that was going on in Cargill was in was in trouble when I took it over. It was the reason it was in trouble. Back to my previous thing, is my predecessor hadn't understood how their Treasury commodities business worked, and I ended up with a. I remember a guy, currency trader there. I spent hours and hours having cups of tea and coffee with Frank while he continually tried to explain to me to this dense irish man what he was doing i eventually got it and we adjusted the project a little bit the whole thing worked and you know it was was really really a great success the other one then when i went to the Philippines, and this goes back to culture again my philippine staff started acting differently than they had before now i'd worked with these three guys, three young ladies, for three and a half years at this stage, and they were excellent on every project. When you had a deadline, you know, they'd pull as many late nights as you wanted to, and they always came up with the goods. And then when they went to the Philippines, they started acting differently, and what what I fairly quickly understood, because I had, this is is pre-Google, I had my couple of culture handbooks with me, is that, they could no longer speak independently in meetings. They had to kind of go through their supervisor or manager. So it was a very different way of working. But again, understanding that, I was able to adjust myself so that I could have private one-on-one chats at times. And then when there was nothing controversial or you needed a group session, you do it that way. So, you know, it was um, it was quite a quite an interesting education for me.
0: Oh no! Um, so I think I think that was your first brush with cross-cultural learnings, and 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 that was really interesting to know that you know the guys, the Filipino guys, when they were working with you in, uh, uh, I think in UK, they were, uh, they were okay. They, yeah, and then they the world... the,
1: the... yeah, they worked with me in the UK, in Russia for a bit, and then even in Singapore and Hong Kong, they were fine. But it's when they got back to their home country so even within asia where sometimes you do have you know more of this kind of uh group culture and the team leader speaks on behalf of the team you know kind of the opposite to maybe the us would be at the other extreme where everybody gives their opinion whether you want it or not at times you know kind of kind of thing so it was yeah it was uh, it was interesting
0: yeah Uh, But then, how did you overcome that problem? How did you make them behave the way they were doing earlier?
1: Well, it was it was very difficult to get. You can't, I can't change Philippine culture. You can change it. So what we did was um, we tried to sideline the manager uh, a little bit because she was actually a bottleneck. We broke them out to, to smaller teams we put one of each of my six Filipinos that I knew well in charge of those six little teams. And then they were able to represent the three or four or five people under them and speak as the group. But of course they were already my people and knew how to speak, you know, knew, knew what I wanted and I knew how they operated as well. So, you know, it was um, it was a kind of a compromise.
0: Okay, I think I think I think maybe the bottleneck was the manager uh, who had not worked with you so much than the people itself. But anyway, let's yeah. move on. let's move on. Finn.
1: No, it's sorry. There's one thing about that is she hadn't worked internationally.
0: Oh, she okay. subsequently
1: um, became a lot more open a few years later because um, it, it wasn't so much me, but Eunice has started to use her on assignments in different countries, and then she she opened up. I think i think maybe some of it was uh, this is something you have to be aware of it was maybe a lack of confidence or she felt challenged okay i'm a caucasian coming in here you know you're setting up this thing where in fact all i was really was a temporary mentor i knew how to do this i was passing on my knowledge and some of my skills and then moving away so it's important i think you know you've just reminded me of another lesson make sure people know that when you're in that position. So if you are going in as a consultant, make sure people know that you're going to be gone. You're not here to challenge them. You're not here to take over their job. You're here to work with them, bring the standards up, do whatever it is, and then move on. And your success will be measured as to how well things are after you leave.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. So, yeah, then you uh, then you then you moved on to the other side of the world again, Arab banking. So tell us about that.
1: You know, yeah, well, I'd love to tell everyone that I had a planned out career path, but um, I didn't. Uh, On the way back from Southeast Asia, I was heading back to Ireland, which anyone who's been there knows that it's grey, cold and wet during the winter. This was um, around Christmas time, January. And the the CEO of of the, um, or the GM of Unisys banking uh, had two projects that he needed some troubleshooting in. One was in Kazakhstan and the other one was in Bahrain. Now I'd been in Russia for a winter and it's rather cold as it is in Kazakhstan. So I had to get out my little atlas and look at this tiny little island in the Persian Gulf. I saw it was sunny and warm. So I said, okay, I'll go there. Uh, that was that was the driver of my career. Um, uh, that was my career decision at, at that time. I went join the project in our banking corporation. I was the troubleshooter for a few months. I couldn't understand. This is a core uh, banking core system replacement project. Hundred and twenty people running, um, working on it. A project schematic that looked like a very complicated wire diagram i couldn't understand it, and i kept talking to people and nobody really seemed to know what the project was about other than it was a core banking system replacement but what i couldn't understand was why was it so complicated so i kept asking until i eventually figured out that actually nobody did know what this project was about because they'd allowed so much scope creep and so many they'd allowed everyone to put their tuppence worth in and so it was incredibly complicated. I ended up taking over that project, simplifying it hugely, cut down the team to 16 people from 120, turned it into a few streams. Each stream was fairly easy to understand and with a quarterly delivery in each of those streams so that um, people could have confidence that something was happening and that we were you know, getting towards our objective. So again, all about giving people something that's easy to understand easy to latch on to um then you can you can proceed
0: yeah so you know it's like keep it biteable. i mean don't take on too much uh even then you know uh, put it into uh parallel streams make small teams and 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 try to show outcomes faster And i mean uh at least on a quarterly chunks i i, I think i think you know to a, in a certain way this resembles the modern uh, delivery methodology of agile and i think you did it when when was yeah this, this was much longer back right this was what 2006
1: this is 1999
0: 2000 wow <laughs> so so it just shows that the principles remain the same that you know deliver fast deliver lean and keep it uh keep keep it keep it in biteable chunks yeah so um yeah, and the uh, other
1: one—the other one that time, sorry, Jack. The other one that time was, you know, if if you if you find if you're on a milestone and you discover that it's not really working, abandon it or change direction. Get around. Don't keep banging your head against the wall because you'll just get bruised and battered.
0: No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you need to in the in the again the modern terminology. It's called pivot. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, fail fast. You
0: know? fail fast, fail fast, and pivot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. By the way, you know, on the on your choice between Kazakhstan and Bahrain, I can vouch for uh, your choice that you made the right one. Uh, Kazakhstan around this uh, time, or maybe January, would be about minus fifty degree. I think it can get yeah. colder than that. If I'm correct.
1: <laughs> yeah, it can get it can get extremely cold, as far as I know.
0: I mean, I've I've been there. It's extremely hot and extremely cold. Uh, so, yeah. Now, and I think I think the the learnings here are like you know the speed of execution, uh, deliver fast, fail fast, reward, right? And parallelized delivery. If even if it's a large program, you can still make it uh, run in a more agile way if you break it down into parallel streams rather than have a monolithic program organization. Yeah. So uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: And what I'd say one thing one thing more about those milestones. Please don't have them too technical so that only techies can understand it. They're not your customers, the business is your customer. So the milestones must be something that's meaningful to the business and presented in their language as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think this will further come out that uh, we are still uh, to reach that you know some of the meaty uh, aspects of our discussion, which will come out very clearly that you know you need to focus on the business, the business problems, and even communicate in business terms. So, Finn, um, uh, fast forward, uh, where were you when the financial crisis happened? At the
1: end of, I stayed with that that bank for um, six years. I ended up being after that project, I ended up being the deputy global head of technology. And stay there until the end of 2004. Then, uh, five, six, seven, part of eight, I was in um, Frankfurt in Ireland. I was the MD Group Head of Technology for Depfa Bank, which is a public infrastructure, finance, and investment bank. Um, quite a small bank, three, four hundred people, but with a massive balance sheet, about 300 billion. Euro. so basically it financed big government infrastructure projects and also did some proprietary trading unfortunately um, because one of its um, it had big deposits and a lot of business with the now infamous Lehman brothers so it got this bank got into serious trouble once um, Lehman collapsed because I think they had a 50 or 60 billion dollar exposure to Lehman when it went, which, uh, which was a challenge for the German government who had to uh,
0: uh,
1: fund and um, and bail it out. So that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, quite, quite interesting.
0: But I think the, the 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 charm of the Middle East didn't leave you, right? So you came back to Middle East.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, I had left there just before the financial crisis um, because that bank had been taken over by another bank called Hypo uh, Real Estate. And when the financial crisis hit, um, I was uh, safely ensconced in um Samma Bank in Saudi Arabia, where I was a contract CIO with um, a remit to train up um, my Saudi successor, who was my deputy. But there was just, you know, it was he'd come from a technical background. He was missing some of the business technology insights. And so you know he needed a bit of training on, on, um, or or a bit of mentoring on, you know how exactly the business ran, what the products were, and again dealing and interfacing with um, with business people, you know not just through a help desk, actually going, seeing them for coffee, asking them how you're doing, is there anything I can do for you? Can we make our service better? so i did that and actually ended up in kuwait after that doing more or less exactly the same thing mentoring a kuwaiti deputy who subsequently took over from me after um a couple of years so you know that was all all quite interesting then ended up in um went to um holding company of saudi bin laden group saudi bin laden was the biggest conglomerate in saudi arabia at this time about seven eight years ago with um, the whole company had four hundred and eighty-seven uh, companies in it, with uh, about three hundred and thirty thousand. Anyway, it was over three hundred thousand employees, so a significant-sized organization. What was interesting is that with all these hundreds of companies, each one of them had a different ERP system, uh, different chart of accounts, and a different setup. So they have, you know, they Oracle, they SAP. They had a number of companies had created their own ERP systems from scratch for some strange reason. I went in there uh, first as a consultant because they'd asked me to come and see them. And they wanted to know how I would turn these 400 plus ERP systems into a single system to which I... You know literally went i uh, really have no idea but i can tell you it's got to take you an awful lot of long an awful long time and it's going to be a lot of hard work so then I did what i normally do i said um do you mind me asking might seem like a silly question why do you want to do that and i said well it takes us about two years to do a consolidated chart of accounts because we've got all these differences all over the place I was going, okay, so why don't you put a financial consolidation system, sit it on top? And they said, so what would that do? And I said, well, use Oracle Hyperion, for example, which is what they ended up doing and just suck some data out of all these systems and you can produce your consolidated chart of accounts, which is what we did within a few months, certainly less than, than a year. While we were doing that, we then began for Hyperion, we needed a group chart of accounts. So we then use, subsequently used that to begin to propagate a single chart of accounts, or kind of reverse engineers across the, the underlying companies. And following that, we started to standardize some of the terminology, what we have, uh, metadata standardization. So gradually over a period of time, these ERP systems began to look like each other without having to do you know the big bang, huge painful mega project so i think the the key point and the key learning from this is again go back to ask the why don't always just accept the mandate you have to of course acknowledge the mandate and but then you know do have uh lift lift up the hood have a root underneath to figure out what's really going on and most of the time when you do and you can explain a different path quite clearly most companies most businesses will be prepared to change and you know uh, go the easier and probably less risky route so then the other thing that we found out having consolidated all this information we noticed something particularly in the larger companies in in this group and you know a number of these companies would have been turning over billions per annum, billions of dollars per annum. We found a few companies that had huge amounts of deposit and other companies that had huge loans, quite often from the same bank, but they were charging a 6% margin to lend our own money back to us. As soon as we realized this, I'd suggest you're you beginning to see a pattern here. Cargill, in-house treasury, in-house banking system, so I put something similar into Saudi Bin Laden Group. In the first year, we saved about $50 million in fees and interest charges. Wow. You know, so, you know what, what, what I'm saying here, what I think I'm saying is, if we'd gone down the path of trying to integrate our ERPs, we'd still be there. We'd still have our heads stuck under the hood. We'd be, you know, working away and we'd have missed all these opportunities and, you know that the, the, the it, it was certainly a far what we did was you know of much far greater benefit to the business
0: oh yeah, yeah well I think I think I think there's some really, really uh, you know uh, important learnings here uh, so let me play back some of these. The first one is like you know so you were asked to come uh, I mean for solving a particular problem which they saw it from their point of view, which is. I want to consolidate, uh, I want you to consolidate 400 plus uh, ERPs, right? Any technologists would have like jumped Yeah, well, that
1: a... their problem, yeah, but their problem was, uh, why can't we produce a consolidated chart, uh, consolidated like financial for, for the holding company, for the group? Oh, it's because all these ERP systems are different. Let's make them all the same and that will speed stuff up.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, 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 I should, I should also say that you know, for a hardcore technologies, you know, it could have been a godsend opportunity. Oh my God, I can spend next five years like you know doing this, and uh, you yes, know, it can, it can be a great technical innovation. You know, we can, we can do so much, so many things to like you know consolidate those. You can actually generate a lot of collaterals uh, for the future. But I think you know, if you, if you, yeah. if you step, if you go deeper than that and go into the why and why and why, and they say that, you know, ask why six times. I think you didn't have to go that, uh, go that far, but, you know, I think within a couple of whys, you understood that, uh, the reason they wanted to consolidate these, these ERPs was because they were not getting the information desired from these systems, which was a consolidated chart of accounts. And then like, you know, is there a better way to reach there? And that better way was a high P, high P than consolidation. And I think, uh, then came the mining part of it which is uh... sorry just just
1: one one other aspect of that case is that 487 companies some of these companies were reasonably mature other ones were on a maturity process scale at the lower end of it so you know you're basically with the erps from my view you would have been trying to uh, merge apples and oranges into being some sort of fruit that would never have um it just you know technically yes it would be it would be um it's you could actually achieve it and yes a consolidated erp would no doubt have resulted in great savings but the then the complexities far outweigh the potential business benefit of this
0: no absolutely absolutely and i think i i have also in my experience you know i've seen that in I think in GE also, they had 400 plus ERPs. Uh, I don't think they could make it into one, but definitely, you know, the discussion around uh, standardization, around, uh, you know, making the whole uh, IT landscape lean did lead to a reduction in the number of ERPs, but I think the starting point was, like, you know, a global uh, chart of accounts. And then the businesses were competing for, like, you know, aligning to that global chart of accounts. And and that led to, uh, you know, a lot of um, I would say change. Uh, so I, I think, I think the moot point here that, uh, that is being made is that, uh, there is a business problem to be solved. There is a, and when business people are trying to solve it, they will bring out a certain technical, you know, uh, ask of it, but you don't really have to do that. You have to go underneath and see, is there a better way to solve that problem? Uh, and, and, and I think, and I think, uh, you know, from that, uh, a certain amount of standardization that you did in chart of accounts and all, you would have figured out this information that you know there are people who are putting deposits in the banks and they're taking loans, and then you're paying the margins, right? Hey, I am your podcast host, Jagdish Belwal. I had a rich career as CIO at Tata Motors and GE. Now, as an advisor, I help organizations transform with technology. Technology is necessary for digital transformation, but not sufficient. So I help organizations with the rest of it. Leadership, strategy, culture, change management, etc. You can connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. For now, keep listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and do connect with me on LinkedIn. Once
1: you begin to see the data. So, you know, it's it's actually because we... You know, if you took we took a pragmatic approach and just put a, a financial management system, consolidation system on top of it, we were able to much more rapidly, or yeah, more rapidly assimilate key business information and some key business indicators and things like that. And that, that that's just one example. There were actually loads of other things that that you know occurred. One of the other ones was that. Um, We were always, we found that our um, purchase ordering was a complete mess. For example, a lot of them were just in the habit of paying late, you know, paying after 90 days instead of 30 days and incurring, you know, not huge charges, but maybe 1% per month. But when you do 1% per month for three months across a company that's over 50 billion annually, it becomes you know a huge amount of money so yeah but but it all goes back to this thing that um they my feeling my feeling has always been that it's up to the technologist to take the lead and understand of course with you know with digitization that's becoming much more of a norm now because you tend to be embedded in the business and if you know if you're if you're running an agile um you know kind of process then you're going to be embedded with business people anyway because it's all you know tends to be more all one team to make it work but it certainly wasn't the norm in the past
0: uh, no absolutely absolutely yeah if, even then- if
1: you're going to you know um if, if if you go to a board meeting and you're giving an update at a, at a board meeting or some senior management meeting i'd always go around and try and have a chat with everybody that i know is going to attend beforehand just sound them out, give them uh, um, give them an idea of what I'm going to say so that if I see any warning flags going up, I can address them before the meeting rather than being hijacked or getting into trouble in the meeting. So yeah, like they, I sure, you know, Sandeep, who was, I can only see Sandeep's name on, on the screen. There. But this thing is anyone who spent more than a decade in um in tech and in their career will realize that it's iq gets you the job it's eq that um, helps you to be successful and all of that is about human interaction and communication
0: okay no you actually precluded one of my rapid files but that's okay i'll still ask you that question so uh, all right I- so sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not a problem not a problem so, so Sumit, uh, yeah, he agrees that correct diagnosis is 99% of the solution. We have another regular here, Kalash Bhatt. Hi, Kalash. And uh, we have Jagdish. Hi, Kalash. he says, thank you, Jagdish and team, for having Finn as part of Clarity Chat. Ireland is a good place to live and work if one can manage cold. <laughs> I think I think. Yeah, Yeah, well, good in, Ireland, place in
1: Ireland, it's not yeah, the problem with Ireland, it's a bit chilly, but it's also very high humidity. So this dampness goes straight into your bones, especially if you come from a nice warm country.
0: Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we have another regular here, Sabir. Uh, uh, Sabir, uh, yeah, uh, he says, greetings Jagdishanfin. I'm enjoying the talk show. Uh, it was a really interesting case study that you shared with me where you know, apart from solving the problem, you know, what what really came out as a message was that you can win political wars without casualties. So tell us about the trading floor versus IT.
1: Yeah, this was the investment bank that I worked at. Um, I was in there they were using a, a system called Mises Summit, which is actually a very good treasury trading system. But it had a terrible reputation in this bank. It's just the system just doesn't work. It doesn't give us the information. Um, so, of course, I'm saying actually it's a really good system. I've worked on this before and it had an excellent reputation in previous organizations. So, again, you start scurrying around under the hood. And I found that the reason it could they couldn't get good reports out of the system was that the data wasn't actually in the system, it was all Excel sheets, mainly on the trading floor, about 8,000 of them to be uh, precise. um, The traders were very attached to these Excel sheets because with their quants and other guys, they could adjust these really quickly, do stuff on the fly. They didn't have to wait for anyone from IT to write a spec sheet or come and interview them and do the adjustments and things like that. However, they, so I was, the new, new CIO. Now, if my first act had been to say to all these traders, I'd taking away all your spreadsheets, then I would have been probably lynched and hung out to dry. That would have been the end of my, <laughs> my, my tenure in that organization. So what I did was um, I went to the head of risk and he had already recognized this problem. And, you know, he was kind of, um, shall we say, circling around us um, cautiously. Then he'd, he'd been in the organization a bit longer than me. And he said, actually, he said, the, the guy, the, the head trader, or the, the trading floor manager, he's a pretty decent guy. So we went and had lunch with him. We chatted out the problem. And he said, "He said I want to help because it's, I'm exposed. I know there, are, but you know, prizing those excel sheets would be you know like trying to pry something out of a dead man's hand trying to get them away from the trader so what we did with that one is we got a big four consultancy companies come in and um effectively do the dirty work for us so they reviewed all the excels they found out that uh, well over 90 percent of actually i think it was only about two or three percent of them had no errors now okay oh. the the first the first block of percentages were just spelling errors, so they didn't make a material difference. But still, still errors. You know, so it's a name spelled incorrectly. So it may not be put, picked up by a report string, uh or something else like that. Then there were other little errors, and but what became really fascinating was that about something like 20% of them, 10 or 20% of them, had some serious. Mathematical errors that could have led to systemic problems, so that they were the ones that we ended up tackling first and quite often these were in use for three four or five years, so there was absolutely no reason why they shouldn't have been converted onto the and rewritten on on a you know the core system with the proper database proper data security, everything like that but what what we did with that was that the um the head of treasury became the business sponsor of this so instead of it trying to solve the problem he took it on along with the head of risk and they asked us to help so we were no longer the uh bad guys we were now the people coming in to 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 help of course we did have to give um you know the project was a success and the accolades went to the head of treasury, I went to the head of risk, which I was absolutely fine with because it was it was really good. Uh, it was a really sound basis from our platform for me to work with them in the future. You know, it gave me very good credibility. And so, you know, it's it worked uh, quite well, but again, it's back around to people and communication. And Absolutely. not always take not always taking the obvious approach. you know it's one of the things, and jagnes you know this very well, I know from previous time. it's all too easy, and I, I think everybody else on the call will recognize this as well. It's all too easy to make tech the scapegoat. And you have to be really careful not to allow that to happen because if you allow that to happen, you're not only doing your tech people at the service, you're doing the business of the service because it's, you know, it's like a decoy. We'll just blame IT. It's the system doesn't work. Yeah, the system doesn't work because you're not using it. You know,
0: (laughs) so you have to be. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. I I think this is a very powerful case study, uh, Finn, and that's why I kept it like, you know, as a separate sharing from you. Uh, The first thing is that, you know, when there is a big, uh, you know, business risk that you see out there, uh, you know, one, you got to act. Second is that, you know, I mean, yeah, most big problems are never solved alone. So you got to find the partners within the business and uh and and you know mm-hmm. find find the guys who have the real empowerment. Like for example, in this in this case, even if you call out the problem and you're able to like, you know, really bring out the problem, you're not the one who can solve it. You don't have that empowerment, right? That's a that empowerment no. is with the head of state, right? And even yeah, Avan, even even calling out this thing as a risk is actually the head of risk not not really it so you really got the right people in okay and then and then collaborated with them uh, identified the problem got it validated and all the while keeping it sort of safe right and uh, and 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 just acting as a catalyst uh, for all of this the other thing uh, you know which you mentioned which is also very important is and this is something i have faced and i have sort of solved you know, the way business evolves and technology hasn't been very, very planned in many businesses. Uh, there are areas where, you know, there is a bit of technology, somebody brought it, you don't know who did that, but you know, that if something goes wrong, the technology is going to be blamed, even though the formal ownership is not with you. Mm-hmm. So, so an approach I took, you know, when I took over as a CIU and I, it was a very lean team and, you know, um, a lot of unaddressed areas and all, and uh, and then I started working on them. But one of the approaches that I took was that if there is something, uh, okay. So it was that there are lots of technology outside of IT's boundaries. So my simple challenge to the team was: if something goes wrong in that area, right? Will we be blamed for it? Okay. If the answer is yes, okay, then we better take ownership of it and not let it go unmanaged. So, so just by asking that question, is IT going to be blamed for something not working or something failing? If the answer is yes, we go out and we seek ownership of that, uh, of, of that area. And if people are unwilling, then we call it out explicitly that this is in your management area. And then, like, you know, I think the moment you start having those kind of discussions, I think a certain amount of governance uh, comes in, even if it may be like, you know, okay. Come and review it with us. You know that kind of uh, discussion. Um, but I think uh, yeah, that's that's a really, really
1: good point, Jack. Please, I remember a number of years ago going to a CEO saying, um, you know, we need a big increase in the IT budget because you don't have any. This is pre-cloud. You don't have any backup data centre, uh, and he said absolutely no way absolutely no we've got to cost way too much i said okay i'll send you a memo um requesting this and you just send it back to me reject that you don't need it he said no 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 hold on i didn't say definitely not (laughs) so you know you this key thing it's it's on the same theme there are ways that you could present Refusals, and there are ways that you can get around things, and you just have to. Sometimes you just have to think outside the box, because I can guarantee you that organizations, and it was systems were pretty mission critical, and being offline would have been a huge reputation risk. Despite being refused a a backup data center, IT would of course be blamed for everything. One hundred percent, they would have been blamed straight away.
0: Absolutely. so the
1: thing is sometimes you have to be figure out a way to put the risk back on to the you know back to where it should be basically no,
0: absolutely I, I fully agree with you in, the, in fact you know this uh, keeping yourself covered and keeping your teams covered and not really coming under those some of those pressures which may come from uh, you know different places uh, I think it re- it also requires a little bit of backbone to stand up for the right things. And I think that's that really goes a long way in establishing your own credibility.
1: Yeah, but remember the thing is as well, is that, um, and I know you know this, you don't want to become so risk-averse that you don't actually continue to deliver. So what we're saying here, both of us, I think is saying, is just recognize the risks. Ask the questions you said. Ask us why will IT be blamed of this system that that we don't control, or um, if it goes wrong. If the answer is yes, then figure out some way of mitigating that risk, but you know, still allowing the business to do business and the system to work.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I would, um, um, I would really like you know find a, a verbal nuance in that, uh, Finn, instead of saying being risk averse. I would say be risk covered Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's actually that's that's the glass half full rather than the yeah, glass yeah. half. much <laughs> exactly, more positive yeah. version. Jagdish, yeah, excellent.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, uh, Finn, we are like you know around eight minutes from uh, the end of this. Um, Jagdish Thambi, he has a question for you. So he says, interesting point m- made on learning business processes by the IT team we see this gap even today where functional consultants are filling the gap. How did you manage IT team uh, know the business and the framework approach for it? So, Finn, one was like, you know, you knowing the business process, you focusing on it. But how do you sort of make your entire team do that?
1: Well, I've actually had training workshops and quite often I led these myself. What was was really funny is that uh, for the initial workshop, the IT guys, and by guys, I'm saying it, you know, plurally, it's male and female, are going, oh, good, we're going to have to learn something about the business. But what was really interesting is after a couple of sessions, they become really interested in it. And quite often, I'm proud to say, Understood the business far better than the business people because they're very process oriented. They go, okay, exactly how does this work? And they'll go through the whole thing until they understand the whole process. The benefit for that then became, of course, they, IT people, when they see a dodgy process or an inefficient process, why are they doing that? That's completely pointless. You can go from A to C, you don't need to go to B at all. And quite often you'd end up finding out that that was just historical that was before they even had a system. They used to have this manual process, which they just converted on. But, but what, I've, what I've always, with this one on that, it, I don't think the right way is to, okay, I went off and did an MBA, I did the Institute of Bankers exams, and that will suit some of us, and, and I'm sure there's lots of people on, on this conversation that have, have done that similarly. But on a more practical perspective, if uh, if you're in a bank, you just start off with retail and go through the different account types and a bit of understanding of that and then you can go into the maybe commercial sme the lending business and then you look at atms like for example you can loads of stuff on on youtube i i use it sometimes to create my own powerpoints or my own little um explanations recently i did something with a couple it was just explaining the card interchange system. I was, I was dealing with a with a fintech startup in the open banking peer-to-peer payments field. And they were taking on and trying to challenge the the card suppliers. But I figured out that they didn't actually understand the card interchange system. I say, how are you going to beat your enemy or challenge them if you don't know what they're doing? And it was literally, we just spent um we spent about an hour on it. But it gave them enough impetus enough um, impetus to go off and learn some more themselves, and now they've come up with some. They're actually looking at collaborating with uh, one of the card companies.
0: Oh, that, that that that's a that's a really good example, uh, Finn. Uh, so, Finn, uh, now let me let me let me throw some uh, rapid fires at you. So, uh, uh, tell us one uh, powerful example of change management uh, from 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 your tenure pick the best one
1: let me see what's the most powerful one on change management oh yeah i have i have a very nice one here the in in that large saudi company you had companies that were in existence for 40 50 60 years and loads of it departments that were uh, everybody said you cannot change these guys. There has been in and tried to do that. So what we did was we created a survey, asked them to assess where they were themselves and then tell us what improvements they'd like to make to themselves. And then we will help you facilitate that. So change management by getting the um, the very people we wanted to change to start changing themselves. And again, you know, it's just a little bit, you just you know you just turn the mirror around, turn it back on themselves, and i i was I expect that to work what I was really surprised was exactly how well it worked
0: oh no that's a that's a really powerful one actually, a very, really powerful one because when you ask people to reflect, you know most of the times you don't ask them, but if you ask them to reflect, then then I think yeah. people are really honest, yeah. So uh, uh, Finn, uh, let's now move to the final round, of, final uh, part of our of, of our chat, which is rapid fire. I asked you just one, of the first one now the next one. IQ or, IQ or EQ, which is the more important and why?
1: Which I uh, which I covered earlier accidentally. I mm-hmm. think now, uh, you IQ now you have to choose.
0: Now you have to choose between the two.
1: <laughs> IQ, EQ. EQ, no EQ. I'm taking. I'm taking EQ every time. Every time. It doesn't matter how, how smart you are, if you can't get on with people, you're not getting anywhere. Absolutely.
0: Or you're absolutely. not going anywhere. Yeah, great. Yeah. One example from your philosophy of democratic and collaborative leadership.
1: I totally disagree with command and controls i believe i strongly believe if you empower people if you allow people to succeed obviously you have you will you get far far better results so it always has to be democratic now democratic doesn't mean you know just chucking everything and letting everyone do everything in whatever way they want you bound it with some parameters and guidelines, and then you let people get on with it. Which is, you know, which is, which is why a lot of the agile when they're done well, or really, really, well. If they're not governed properly, you can have total
0: chaos. Oh, absolutely. So focus on the governance and the wh- hows, uh, how uh, of uh, how the work yeah. gets done. In- yeah. Yeah. I, I. think.
1: Yeah. I. I is there to support and encourage rather than command and control?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so um, uh, my next rapid fire to you is CIOs and IT departments are invisible. Uh, what can they do to become more visible and why is it important? And just dig into your experience for that answer.
1: For one thing, the business. Business people probably a bit less so today, but it's still it's still quite true. And usually, the higher up the organisation you go, the more true it is. They generally tend to be afraid of technology because quite often they don't understand it. So then it's best put it in the back cupboard. It's like you know, it's like you know, don't let IT out of the closet kind of thing. So um, you keep it in there. Um, the I believe the opposite is true. You have to be um tech has to be embedded in the business again it shouldn't be the case but it's up to tech to make that happen you do that by some of the things i previously mentioned which is understanding the business and then going out going out and collaborating with the business you might have to start having a few coffees or a few cups of tea and a few lunches like me but create those connections build up that trust and then you'll be seen as you know, IT will be seen as a, as a much a, a partner in the business rather than a support function that you know just gets called when they when they have a problem or an issue. Sure. Um, okay. Is ask anyone on this um, always communicate what? Doing in a way that they understand it, and we all stop. We all forget to do that. We get involved in the project and we forget about communication and telling people yeah. what we're doing and how we're helping.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I can share something here. You know, in um, so we had started a process of an annual uh, IT conference outdo, and uh, you know, about two months before that, we started actually going to the business leaders. Uh, especially those where we had delivered large programs, and we would ask them to for a for a one-minute clip on, like you know, how IT had them. And when we consolidated them across the entire uh, business, uh, and we played them back at the conference, that actually, like you know, it, the the whole energy in the room went up, uh, you know, substantial uh, notches. So it's also important for the pride and uh, for for the confidence of the team, also. Okay, so that's
1: uh, that's a a really, really good one.
0: Yeah. So Finn, uh, maybe my second last question to you, which is, you know, what one thing that enterprises should do and one thing that they should not do uh, to engage effectively with the startup?
1: You know, let's take it in a little bit of, um, I got to kind of personalize this a bit, talking about banks and fintechs. The organisation cultures tend to be very, very different. And banks in general are fairly slow moving. They're risk averse. They like double checking everything because under central bank regulations, they have to do that. Uh, fintechs, young, agile, you know, want to get on with stuff. They. When when you now both of these need each other but when you bring them together, you should not try to impose the mature organization enterprise culture onto the fintech. You my view on that is you set deliverables, you set targets, you set milestones, and once they achieve those and uh, the work quality is good, then the objective has been achieved. It doesn't matter to you how they go. To that particular point because they've achieved the business outcome. So make it very much business outcome focused and on business deliverables.
0: Okay, no, that's great. That's great. And which is one technology you're excited about and why? I'm excited about a lot of technologies. Um,
1: I'm one, well, the metaverse, if anyone knows what it is, actually yeah because look i'm looking at something i'm looking we're looking at some things with, with a group of people that i've worked with in the in the past and we're looking at some of the platforms that we've used and we've built for other people in the past is building kind of generic white label versions of those that could be propagated infinitely across the metaverse so when you want a content creation platform you have it when you want a payment platform you have it because if you think about these things in in a lot of the digital work there's a load of people doing exactly you have a, you have ten thousand people inventing the wheel at the same time and there are only slight variations of that and i think this i haven't figured it out yet i've only just started thinking about this but i i think it's it's going to be fascinating
0: oh no that's that that, that that's interesting building a platform and i think the important one you ma- mentioned there was metaverse yeah. Yep. Okay. So Finn, we are we are we are sort of at the end of it. I mean uh, you get an up I have been asking you questions and I've been putting you in the hot seat. So this is your I call it the revenge question. So your opportunity to ask me a question. Oh
1: yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was um what was your biggest failure or mistake? In your career, and what did you learn from it? I have plenty, so you know.
0: <laughs>
1: what we, so we put we put it we put, it, we put it in Jack D's Turks is glass half full. What was your greatest learning outcome?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think I think I think that's a good, great question, uh, uh, Finn. Um, so my biggest failure was you know something which had the biggest potential uh so this was you know uh, i think around 2006 or 7 when uh, you know we had connected all the dealers on you know these high-speed networks and uh, the crm was running everywhere and that's when you know i started uh, looking at two use cases one is how to use this network to deliver trainings efficiently that means you know i thought of a studio okay in uh, within the company um and you know some trainer basically opening up like you know some components and this thing being streamed to if not let's say the 2000 or 3000 places we had connected even if it was streamed to 200 places where we could run virtual classrooms you know it would be like really really efficient and the reach and the speed to market will be very uh very fast the context of this was the launch of tata nano which uh, you know we had big plans in terms of you know expanding our network and you know getting the number of sales people and service people in uh, now it so happened that uh, you know this need didn't come from business i came from business and i identified this more as a leverage that we could uh, provide from a technology viewpoint for solving a problem of training thousands of people we actually did run a couple of programs mm-hmm. but i was the program manager and uh, it failed spectacular i mean those two programs were very successful we ended up training 500 people but the whole thing really bombed because and that's where my learning was and that's why i didn't repeat that mistake again the biggest uh, problem was i did not really actively find a business sponsor to own that up because it failed because of all the business reasons like for example uh, there were some large dealers with with you know necessary facilities like you know large conference rooms and you know some backup networks and all where you know they actually provided those facilities for the first training but then on when they are providing those facilities for other dealers you know you, we got to compensate them you know there has to be a mechanism to for them to cover their costs and that's a business decision right the second thing in terms of like you know setting up the studio mm-hmm. and you know getting all the equipment and then you know like getting the trainers to use that i mean that's again a business decision so we solved all the technology aspects of it, ran successful pilots, but but I did not create the business sponsorship and uh, uh, and therefore the business uh, enablement questions didn't get answered. Those facilities didn't get set up and, and it bombed. Then on, I have never touched a program which was my passion project, and but there was nobody in the business excited for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, it goes back to the thing You must make sure that everybody's on the train when you set out on your journey. I think we discussed that one before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by now it
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow, what an insightful discussion with Finn. I loved it. I hope you loved it too. Listen to more of these. Do subscribe to Clarity Chat Podcast available on all major podcasting platforms. In our next podcast, I will host Jay Thomas, VP IT Infrastructure and Operations at WERS Innovation, popularly known for the Daily Hunt and Josh platforms. Watch out for our next Clarity Chat podcast with Jay Thomas.